I'm with David Younghands, who is the Managing Director of Tablehurst Farm, which is a community-owned farm in Forest Row, East Sussex. And David, I'd like to start off by asking you, uh, if you don't mind me saying you're a, you're a young man, how did you come to be the Managing Director and the farmer at Tablehurst Farm? <laughs> yeah, you could say quite a short story, really. I came to Emerson College to study biodynamic farm management, which was a three-year course um, about 10 years ago. And in the mornings, we spend our time in the classroom. Afternoon was work on Tablehurst or any other farm. Tablehurst was nearby. And so I started working there as a student. And once I've completed my training, they needed help. So I stayed on as a farm worker. And then one of the farm managers left the farm and uh, they needed another manager. So I kind of stepped in and then Peter Brown went in sabbatical and it, uh, they needed a managing director. And so I was uh, managing director for the time Peter was away. And then Peter never came back in, in that uh, role. And so I stayed managing director. So <laughs> this was when Peter took on the directorship of the Biodynamic That's Association. Right. That's yes. right. Yeah. How do you think that experience compares with, say, being a tenant farmer on a conventional farm? Well, I've never been a tenant farmer on a conventional farm, so I can really, my main experience really is only on Tablehurst Farm and a couple of other farms where I've spent some time as a student. So it's hard for me to answer that question, to be honest. But you have some idea of the differences between a community-owned farm and a farm like, say, Simon Waters next door here, which um, runs with one or two people. Yeah, I mean... Um, You've got more than 20. That's uh, not necessarily because we're a community farm, but because we are a biodynamic farm. Biodynamic farms are usually much more diverse and many more people are needed. And um, there's a huge interest from young people who come as woofers or as apprentices or as students. And a woofer is, could you just explain that term? Um, so that's a program where farms can sign up and young people who want to have some farm experience, who want to travel and see different cultures, different countries and different farms can just spend an amount of time there, a few weeks, a few months sometimes. Yeah, that's woofing. So you've been here for how long on the farm? Gosh, over 10 years now. And what changes have you seen in that time? When I came, the farm was in early stages. It's just been running for about 10 years in that setup and was a family-like pioneering feeling. So the farm was run by one main farmer and loads of apprentices and students and volunteers and so on. And since then, there was a need for another farm manager and another farm manager and a shop manager, etc., etc. And so we started to see the need to become a bit more professional and organized and differentiated, really. And so that's uh, really what has changed. The spirit hasn't changed at all. It's still over 20 people. I think sometimes over 30 people now. Families are starting to establish. It's actually becoming more and more vibrant. So we haven't lost the spirit, but we're trying at least to become a bit more professional. The land and the buildings are owned by St. Anthony's Trust. Mm -hmm. um, the farm business as such is owned by the Tablehurst and Plore Hatch Community Farm Co-op. Mm -hmm. But both Tablehurst and Plore Hatch have their own 
board of directors and management teams. Mm. A fairly complicated ownership structure. How is it for you working within such a structure? Well, as you say, it is complicated because uh, at the moment we are not all sitting around the same table at the same time. So there might be meetings with the trust, there might be meetings with the corp committee. So um, I think communication can be an issue. But the way it's grown historically, it makes very much sense that it is as it is. Mm. Because the I think one of the biggest challenges today is the land ownership issue and access to the land for farmers, especially young farmers. And as you know, Emerson College couldn't hold the land or keep it safe. So it's been transferred to a local trust and they've been uh, looking after it ever since and will do so in the future, I assume. It gives you a lot of security and I experience our relationship, our working relationship with the trust is very, very good. And the trust's uh, purpose or aims is really to um, keep that land as safe as possible for a sustainable farming method and for training uh, for the long-term future. And is this something that you would see as a model that could work elsewhere or is it unique to our situation here in Forest Row? I could see it as a model that could work elsewhere. I think um, if you think of the local communities, um, their relationship is to a farm. That's why CSAs work often so well. And uh, already the relationship of the community to a corp, to an IPS or to a corp committee, as you know, is a bit more tricky. It's not as exciting, not as colorful. It's a legal entity that allows us to do what we do. But the real relationship is with the farms. I think it makes sense to have um, a group in whatever way that looks after land in community ownership. And then the community relates to different farm businesses that can uh, to uh, farm businesses um, making use of the land. So it does make sense to have that separation. I can see that working uh, in many places. And Tablehurst has the land and buildings that St Anthony's Trust owns, but you also are renting land from other local landowners. Mm-hmm. How does that work out? It's very difficult. I mean, um, we are still uh, very privileged to have uh, a couple of quite good landlords who understand our ethos and try to support us as much as possible and not trying to maximize their profit. But as soon as you start renting land from landlords who do not understand our ethos and do not have a relationship to what we do, they will try to maximize their profit and then it becomes very, very difficult to farm the land in a sustainable way because then we do have to look after our profit and at the moment, of course, have to look after our profit Um, but there are certain compromises that we don't want to do and so maximizing profit isn't the first thought that comes to mind when we make decisions. What are the compromises that you aren't prepared to make? The needs of uh, nature, the needs of the animals that we work with are real needs. And if you want to run a farm, um, an organism in a sustainable way, then we have to look at that first. Also, the needs of the people that work there. And so, of course, that, you know, is in conflict sometimes with uh, uh, maximizing profit. So um, we try to you know, get by and make enough surplus to uh, improve and reinvest. 
but we still want to meet uh, all the needs from nature, animals and um, staff as far as we can. So you're working with a strong ethical uh, attitude that the, the land should be farmed in a certain way so as not to overstress the land, so as not to push the animals beyond the limits that, that are natural for them. I mention that again and again, the word is agriculture and not agribusiness. Yes. And the cultural aspect in farming is very important to us. And I always compare it to education. If you want to educate in a good way, then you look at the quality aspect and not at efficiency or maximizing profit. The same with farming. You cultivate nature in the same way as you cultivate a child or help it uh, to cultivate. Yes, absolutely. So is it something about the way the land is farmed that appeals to the local people that makes them feel this is something they wish to support? On the other hand, would it be possible to have a community-owned farm that was run in what we call conventional agricultural terms? I don't think that the certification makes a difference. It's the intention of the people doing what they're doing that makes a difference whether that is certified by dynamic organic or not certified at all, is not the primary issue or the first issue. Of course, uh, when we talk about different farming methods, um, I would be an advocate for biodynamic farming. But when we think of community farms, as I said, it's really the intention behind it. And I think you have to separate or distinguish between producing the highest quality or to have an industrial type of farming and maximize output, really. Um, I've seen very small-scale, non-certified farms in, in southern Germany, which have grown traditionally, and um, they do things with a real passion and with real love and have very, very good produce. I would advise them not to use any pesticides or fertilizers and do differently, but I think their intention leads to a very, very good product. And that's what biodynamic farming is all about. Um, to achieve the highest quality, the highest vitality in food. But again, um, with the right intention, you can come quite far with all kinds of methods. So uh, I don't think um, uh, community farming works in an industrial setup because uh, people are too expensive to be included in that. But it works in many other setups. I don't think it has to be restricted to biodynamic farming. Does it matter if the farm doesn't own all the land it farms? I like the concept that uh, land is in community ownership or in some sort of ownership where it can't be used for anything else so it's safe for the future. And I think it's probably safer in a charity like St. Antony's Trust than it would be if it would be on our balance sheet and the farm and the community would own it um, because we would start borrowing against the land, obviously, because that's what the farm has to do. Mm. If you want to build a new barn, you're unlikely to have the cash readily available to do that. And in the past, the trust has borrowed against the land. And we're very grateful because we could really make big steps in improving the place. And that has changed now, which is a good thing. And it brings new challenges that we are trying to meet at the moment. How do we have access to affordable capital in order to make necessary investments? Mm -hmm. And I think that process in itself is enriching yeah, it's a good process. Um, so I don't think the farms necessarily have to own the land.
What would you say to a young person who wants to set up their own market garden or their own farm today when land is so expensive, when it's treated as a commodity? Mm. What would be your advice to such a young person? Try to uh, develop relationships with uh, local farms that, that are there already and see if they can somehow cooperate. For example, we have the problem uh, that demand is uh, increasing steadily, but we cannot um, just increase production all the time within the boundaries we have set ourselves. At the moment, we are in a relationship with a landlord nearby um, who wants to remain a farmer but needs help and we need sheep. <laughs> we don't have enough land and so we start working together and I see that as something that we help him to get the business running and at some point there will be a young farmer that can take that over as an employee and then we have still the benefit of a local producer that produces exactly what we would produce. So it's a win-win situation? I think it's a win-win situation, yeah. Going beyond the land, what are the particular challenges that face farmers on community-owned farms today? Well, it is this uh, ownership of the land issue. Yes. I think that is a, a massive issue. Yes. I think the whole concept of community farming in different ways, CSAs and so on, is becoming more and more popular because they create access to the land and to farming for their local communities. And the local communities, uh, you know, there's always in the beginning people who are interested in food they can trust, in having a relationship to how it's been grown, in, to, to the animals on the farm, to the farm itself. But then you get more and more people coming because it's, um, you know, another destination for weekend. So in our case, at least, um, because we are so close to Brighton, to London, uh, to the A22 here, and so on, and we get a lot of traffic, we pick up a lot of traffic on the weekends. Um, yeah, there are more and more people coming actually wondering where's the Bouncing Castle and, um, you know, and the Petit Zoo and, and so on. So for us, that's a challenge. I don't know if for others that is a challenge. As a farm which seeks to be an open farm, mm -hmm. you get a lot of visitors mm -hmm. seven days a week? Six, well, seven days, yeah, we're not open seven days a week, we're open six days a week, but we do get visitors seven days a week, yeah. What is that like for people like yourself who live on the farm? Well, I think we need to open seven days a week and then we always have staff uh, on site who are, you know, responsible at that moment. And uh, that means that the people who do actually have a day off can um, have a day off, uh, which is not the case at the moment. You do have to, you know, kind of be on the lookout and um, make sure that people don't jump into pens with the animals and all these uh, things that happen, quite interesting um, things. There's also an issue with, with some irresponsible dog owners, I understand. Yeah, that's a particularly an issue here, but I think in the UK generally, um, with footpaths and the love for dogs in other countries, that is not such a problem, I think. But yeah, here we do have a problem. Yes, and that's with uh, dogs worrying sheep. Yeah. Have you thought at all about becoming more of a destination, of becoming an actual tourist attraction? Yes, not with entertainment, but with education in mind. So it's important for you that the farm remains a proper working farm? Absolutely, yeah. 
but that you are open for people to come and find out more about what it entails. Yeah, to be a proper absolutely. Working farm. Because, I mean, nowadays there are farm shops everywhere. You drive down the A22 here and you have four or five farm shops on six miles or so. And then you go in there and you actually realize that it's not a farm shop. It's a shop that sells some produce from small producers, but you know, it's not a farm that produces for their own shop. I think at the moment we produce more than 50% of what we retail through our shop, we produce on the farm. And we're trying to increase that uh, all the time. I imagine that, you know, farm staff who are trying to get on with their work mm. might sometimes find it difficult to also pay attention to visitors and their inquiries. Yeah, that's just, uh, it's a question of scale and how you prepare yourself for that. I think you can be a destination, you can be open for visitors, you can have a cafe, uh, all kinds of things. You can create nice walks over the farm and still stay true to being uh, an, an honest, uh, biodynamic working farm. I don't see a contradiction there. I think actually it's, um, it's uh, enriching for the people who come because they see something real. Whereas there are lots of farms that turned into destination without doing serious farming anymore and their farm shops are stocked with all kinds of produce, but they're definitely not being produced on that farm. And people don't get a feel for what farming is, really, when they go to these farms. Mm. It's, it's a completely different concept. And I can understand that people do it. You own the land, it's very hard to make a living with farming. So people start renting out units for, you know, businesses. They start campsites and they, they become dis destinations if they're in the right location. So it's all quite understandable, but it doesn't help people understand more about farming and about food production. And I think that's what we, we are really about. And that's absolutely necessary nowadays. And uh, it's great. The um, celebrity chefs have done great work to kind of make people more aware of the importance of good food and good quality and how they can assess it and uh, how important that is for their health. But then people need access to farms to actually experience that. And uh, there are not so many places um, where they can go. Over the years that you've been on the farm, have you noticed any changes in the attitude of visitors to the farm, customers to the shop? Are they becoming more conscious of some of the issues that you mentioned the celebrity chefs have been raising? Yeah, some people. And then there's a lot of people become very conscious because of their own health problems and issues and people change their diets and um, they expect you to cater for all kinds of different diets and, you know, everything needs to be gluten-free and, and so on. So we actually do a lot of work. Uh, um, but it starts always with the people themselves when they have experienced health issues. I think that is where their awareness really starts. I'm not working in a shop. I'm not meeting customers so much. Um, you know, more meeting people coming from different colleges, for example, students, agricultural students, and so on. There, the awareness is definitely changing drastically. And you can see the uh, organic market, the increase, even during the, the financial crisis, and so on. There's an ever-increasing demand for organic produce. And I think it is really the future. The challenge will be that it doesn't become an industrialized uh, organic farming system doing the same like that conventional farms have been doing on a large scale with without any people actually on the farm other than a few machinery drivers operators 
but with an organic label on it because that's what I tried to say in the beginning it's the intention of what you want to do and the scale that makes the real difference and if you um, ask how people experience the farm when they come to the farm and what is the, the spirit of a community farm it is that there are a lot of people working with passion trying to do you know the best for the land and trying to produce really really good food and they experience that and you could have in theory a 10,000 acre biodynamic farm with a few operators it is in theory possible it also wouldn't have the same spirit so it's really the scale yes. um, and the intention of the farmers that matters so would you say that there is a limit to your growth or the growth that the farm would be prepared to contemplate yeah yeah i think um it's very important that people still have a relationship to most parts of the farm no matter who they are whether they're just a temporary helper in the cafe or whether they are uh, one of the enterprise managers uh, and you still need to sit around a table and you still need to have personal relationships and so as long as you can still have a meeting where everyone can sit around a table i think you are okay if that starts to be pulled apart then i think it becomes tricky so so it's keeping it to human scale yeah one of the things i know that you do at tablehurst is that you have a breakfast together and you have lunch together mm-hmm. is that an important component of keeping the farm with this sense of everyone being involved yeah absolutely it's um i mean we do it because we run a care home and we have three um young men with learning disabilities there and um they spent the whole day on the farm and we are their family and so that's why we started having lunches and, and breakfasts together. And it means that um, it's not a job. You go and work and then you go for your lunch break somewhere and then you come back. Um, work and your personal life, the boundaries somehow kind of are a bit blurred. And so it, it becomes a lifestyle. And within that, it has its own you know challenges and, and issues, of course. Um, but your attitude to what you do changes through that. By the way, I'm very interested in Sekhem Farm in Egypt. I don't know if you heard about it. I'm interested too. I, I, I want to get the um, young man who's currently running the farm over here to talk at Emerson. Helmi Abulej, I think is his name, yes. Um, I, I haven't been there. I've spoken once to um, Ibrahim Abulej and once to Helmi Abulej at the conference in Donach. But I watched some YouTube videos um, uh, of them and, and read the books by Ibrahim Abulesh. And they are rather big. They have several companies like for textiles and, mm. you know, all kinds of things. And they have many, many smaller biodynamic farms in Egypt producing for them. But on Sekem Farm, which is quite a big place now, they must have, you know, more than 200 employees at any one time there they do meet up every morning in a big circle and so they do manage at that scale still to kind of keep a certain spirit up <laughs> um, so it'd be quite interested uh, maybe um, uh, that will prove me wrong you know that you can actually scale up even more but I, I don't know how it actually works and how much relationship people still have um, because I mean if you think of a farm at a certain scale let's say you know 10,000 acres again, 
and uh, the production, uh, if you have the same diversity that we have, it's impossible to be involved in each steps of production um, from, you know, cultivating land to selling the produce in the shop or processing it for the shop or, or the cafe. And that means you start losing the relationship and then you have, let's say, something like quality control in between, which is great. It makes things a bit more professional if you know if you actually have a quality control an official quality control system but you might have a farmer someone doing quality control somebody doing processing somebody doing retailing and then it becomes very difficult to bring these people together and then the the outcome will be a very different product like um, let's say you know you can get a really good meal um, mass produced and backpacked and then you you heat it up at home still good quality it'll be very different to what your grandma produces with the same ingredients. Why is it different? It's the same ingredients, the same process, almost. But one is cooked by a person and one is part of an industrial process. And one is presumably produced with love and the other one... Well, maybe that's the difference. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, what are the plans that you have for Tablehurst over the coming five or ten years? Well, uh, you need to understand that the farm still benefits from from people that put a lot of effort and work in, volunteers and so on, that give their expertise for free and work much longer hours than they should. And um, and that's how it works. So there is this extra, you know, extra twenty percent that everyone has to put in to make it possible and successful. And of course, uh, that's that can't be a long-term business model. And so what we have to do is we have to scale up uh, certain parts of the farm. We have to improve the infrastructure and uh, increase our production, which is absolutely possible. Uh, we have a lot of young farmers and we are all learning and so on. So there's a lot of improvements can still be done. And uh, to bring the farm into a situation where we can actually pay salaries that allow people to live, to rent or to buy here in the local community, become an attractive employer so we can provide perspective for the people that work with us. Um, so I think that is very, very essential because... Um, a business model can't just be based on good intentions and the hope that somebody will come and help out. At least that's my personal view. Mm. And um, in our particular case, it's really improving the infrastructure. And then we can kind of increase our scale still slightly. And, uh, and I think then we'll be fine. And uh, once that has been accomplished, I think the farm uh, is a very representable model for community farming and I would really like then to kind of reach out more for example um, the relationship between landowners and farmers there is no good link there that can bring these two together that's something um, where places like Tablehurst Farm I think could really kind of help um, so find new ways of developing community amongst landowners and the farm for example a lot of people sell their farms and then you get people moving in from the city and they are working in London, let's say, during the weekend and on the weekend they are there and the families are there and they have their horses and so on. But they have far more land than they need. Um, but they don't understand the needs of the farmers. And uh, without bringing the landowners and the farmers together 
and um, we could possibly facilitate these things. There needs to be a meeting point where the you know mutual understanding uh, is created and where you can sit around a table. Uh, and I think that will help access uh, to the land for young new farmers. We are you know, we currently have uh, three apprentices. We usually have four, and uh, once they are done with that training, we can't take them on <laughs> because we you know, we can't just increase our staff. Uh, levels all the time so they need to find something else and they really struggle to find something else. Uh, when I graduated from Emerson College I was in touch with several landowners. They were all interested in me farming their land but they were interested in profit, they were interested in all kinds of things, in prestige, but they didn't understand anything about farming, they destroyed the infrastructure um, they wanted to keep the subsidies, which are for the farmers, for very good reasons. Uh, as long as the food prices uh, need to stay so low, farms need subsidies. So there's, a comp you know, there's no understanding and no formal relationship there. And I think uh, there's a lot we can do in the future. And so it's um, really reaching out into the wider community and helping to improve the situation because we are, if you look at uh, the UK, we are in quite a dire situation. Um, average farm is uh, around 70. Uh, a lot of farms are in uh, family ownership. Of course, uh, if the sons and daughters are not interested in farming, it's a wonderful asset that you can sell or you can do all kinds of things with it. But where are we going to produce our food in the future? And how is it being produced? And how can we provide a real perspective for new young farmers? Um, because farming at the moment is not an attractive occupation. It means long hours and very little income. And a lot of farmers start in a caravan, uh, in a mobile home, you know. <laughs> new farmers, farmers that were not taking over their family farms. And so a lot of good people that would take up farming don't see a perspective for them and do something else. By contrast to what's happening in a lot of conventional farms, Tablehurst is attracting, as you've mentioned, young people who want to come and work here. Mm -hmm. You've got families starting on the farm, children being born. Mm -hmm. How do you see the future for those families and their children in terms of the farm being able to provide them with what they need in order to send their children to school, to get the material goods that most families seem to want. Is that going to be a struggle for the farm to meet those needs? We are just in the beginning there, and um, of course I've thought about it. I know what I have to do on the farm in order to improve our situation and then improve the situation of the people who work on the farm mm. uh, in the long term. Um, so I think, um, but I haven't spent too much thought in it um, because I think we are very much dependent on the local community and people understanding what we're doing, the value of what we're doing, understanding that food has to cost a little bit more money. I wish there would be a way of measuring the health benefits and what we actually save for the national economy if you know there would be hundreds of farms like Tablehurst Farm and people would adopt a healthy lifestyle and have access to produce like that. So uh, I think it will work out somehow but if I focus too much on this now I mean it's easy to focus on individual needs and my needs mm. and the needs of the people I work with and we are very aware of that we have to do the necessary improvements 
and then there will be a trickle-down effect. But without the local community and their willingness to buy our produce and their willingness to, let's say, maybe support us by lending us money, by maybe acting as a guarantor uh, if we want to borrow money from elsewhere. There are lots of interesting uh, ways of how they could support the farm and improve the long-term situation. So this communication between us and the community is something that will have to be, I think, in the near future re-established. Because at the moment, well, you heard from Peter Brown about the early days and how the spirit was there. And there were, you know, a group of 20, 30 people who were very close to the farm and really had the feeling this is our farm. Uh, whereas now the farm is for many years now running quite, you know, steadily and quite well and uh, is in increasing its, you know, what it offers to the community and people, even though they are owners, they come as customers. So we have to rethink how we re-establish a closer link with the, uh, or a more active relationship with the local community. I was going to ask you about your understanding of the word community. Has the term, as you understand it, changed over the years? And does it need to change again? Well, I don't think that in the beginning I really understood what it meant, to be honest, uh, because I came here to study at the college and then went to the farm and just worked day and night, really. And I didn't know who the community is. So it was, you know, a little bit abstract because I wasn't born here. I wasn't brought up here. And I also haven't had much time to actually interact with the community. Back then we worked sometimes uh, 70 hours a week. So the community are the people that come to the farm, really. So that's what it was for me for a long time. Now, as managing director, of course, you establish more and more relationships with the community. So for me, it has changed. My perspective has changed. But I don't know if the community has changed. When I was speaking with Peter Brown earlier, he talked about concepts that, um, for example, Patrick Holden of the Sustainable Food Trust has brought forward, this idea of true cost accounting, mm -hmm. where farms have to or should have to pay for the true cost of all the inputs. And it seems to me that what he was suggesting was that there is a huge educational need, both in terms of people understanding the true cost of what conventional agriculture is mm -hmm. and what the true cost of food should be. But there's also the need to have government change its policies to encourage a much more healthy approach to farming and eating. And I was wondering, is this something that has to be done at grassroots level or should there be a campaign nationally to try and change people's minds? It's a difficult question. I think most things happen on grassroots level, really. And then at some point they get enough publicity, though it becomes public awareness grows, really. I understand the difficulties, uh, or I can imagine the difficulties uh, of the, our politicians nowadays. First of all, they often don't know, and they have to rely on their advisors or lobbyists. And so whether a national campaign will help, I don't know. I think what helps is direct experience. And uh, of course, we can reach out to 600, 800, you know, 1500, uh, maybe a few more people. That's what we can do. 
maybe something like that, an interview or uh, a little documentary or a book that has been published and so on, you reach a few more people. But I think the direct experience is absolutely important because most people only learn from experience. That implies that as a farmer on a community-owned farm, you have a wider remit than just your farming. Mm. You also have this cultural remit of explaining what you're doing and trying to help people to understand what the issues are. Yeah. When it comes to politics, um, the problem is there is one issue at a time is being dealt with and one policy at a time. But it actually needs many people from different areas, policymakers, farmers, traders, sitting around a table. And it needs a holistic approach. And uh, unless there is a way of doing that, I can't see the right policies being made. And so what we have, we have a holistic approach on a very, very small scale. And that works. And then, you know, I can talk to the local community and we can kind of take several things into the equation. Uh, when we talk about things, we could sit down with, let's say, the local supermarket, uh, a few of the local landlords and so on. And so that's all possible on a national scale or international scale. That's, of course, much more difficult. But yeah, I, my hope uh, for uh, the right policies, I'm, I'm not very... You're not holding your breath. I'm not holding my breath. But I think, uh, as you said, on the grassroots level, it's market forces, market dynamics that change things most easily um, because everyone reacts to it. And, um, you know, the organic movement is a real movement of success. I mean, it's been 30 years ago when organic farmers or the organic movement has been seen as somewhat, you know, some weirdos, really. And uh, now it's a respectable uh, business, really. And it's billions, uh, or, you know, a year in the organic sector. And I think the um, community farming, the relationship of the communities to their farms, to their land, to their environment, to food, this is really something that has to be multiplied something that we do here and i'm really grateful i mean i you know i haven't done much to bring this about it's been others before me uh, i'm just making sure that you know it continues really but if that could be done again and again and again uh, and there is a, a growing awareness that we can't just be consumers we can't just be spectators in this world we have to become actively involved that's what it takes i think then policies will policy making will be changed by that at you know at some point you mentioned earlier that human scale farming is important globalization is something that reduces us by contrast to passive consumers or or spectators feeling powerless in the face of these huge forces mm -hmm. if that is the case and if our community farms have a way of counteracting that tendency. Mm. What does that mean for people working on the farms? Can they cope with the additional tasks of interacting with their local community and helping to educate them? Or is it the responsibility of the local community to come in and help the farmers with these issues? It's in their interest. I mean, I'm not doing what I'm doing because it's, you know, such an advantage, a personal advantage for me to do that. I'm working 
because I believe this is necessary. It's a benefit created for the local community. And so it is in the interest of the local community that this can continue to work like this. So, of course, this need. I mean, the local community are also landowners, local business owners. The local community are all sorts of people, it's not just customers. Mm. Yeah, so, as I said, we all have to become active. And, uh, you know, when, gosh, I don't know, I was still 95, how old was I? Can't remember. Anyway, I, in Yugoslavia, around 1995, former Yugoslavia, I saw footage, people, you know, you'd think war means, you know, people die because they have been shot or whatever. But the biggest problem was food supply. And that's something that probably always happens when you have civil wars, but it made me aware of that people living in cities give the responsibility of their food supply to other people. And of course, we work in that way nowadays, that we have to do that into some respect, division of labor, really. But it's such an important issue. I mean, it's not just a food supply, it's our environment, our air, our water. All these kind of things are affected by farming and can be destroyed by farming or can be improved by farming. So it's very important that people get actively involved in that again and just don't leave it up to others. I like the idea, you know, we have a, a small allotment scheme a program on the farm, mainly for parents and their children. And I like the idea that everyone, like it used to be, not that long ago, or most people, actually know how to grow food. It's an essential skill. You know, people are so um, nowadays um, helpless because they give all that responsibility away to big corporations, even education. And it's so important that we take charge of this again as communities. David, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much indeed. Very best wishes for the future of Tablehurst Community Farm. Thank you, Jeremy.